I would invite you to take your Bible with me and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Our message is titled today, Living in the Church as a Christian, part 1. Living in the Church as a Christian. Last week's message was called, as you remember, Living in the World as a Citizen of Heaven. Excuse me, Living on Earth as a Citizen of Heaven. And in that message, I noticed that chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, was part of a larger section that encompasses verse 27 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 18. The focus, as we saw last week, of verses 27 to 30 is unity in the face of external opposition. The focus of chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 is unity in the face of internal conflict in the church. And then verses 12 to 18 broaden the scope to faithful Christian living in the world. So as we are walking through this section, we're moving from life on earth as a citizen, citizen in heaven to life in the church as a Christian and then to life in the world as a child of God. I want you to note how the way we live is grounded in who we are. That rises, as we saw last week, from verse 27, where Paul writes, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." We saw that the word worthy of means to live consistent with. So we live out of our, our God-given, gospel-produced identity, not out of what we're trying to achieve or accomplish we saw that last week, and we're going to see that again today. You know, one of the challenges we have when we are interpreting Scripture, even when we're just reading Scripture, is that often we read it like it's some abstract religious text somehow separated from the realities of life. When we do an in-depth study, we look at the theology of a passage, we uh, think about the, the words and how, what their meaning is and how they're used in other passages of Scripture. We kind of reconstruct the historical context of who is writing to whom and under what circumstances. We examine the grammar and do all of these kinds of things that really help us come up with our best understanding of what a, a verse or a, a portion of verses mean. Those are all necessary to do, of course. We have to do that work. But there is an element that we often miss. And that element is the human element. This principle was crystallized in my mind listening to R.C. Sproul a number of years ago teaching on the sacrifice of Isaac. In fact, you can find his message online, The Sacrifice of Faith. And that message exemplifies meditating on a portion of Scripture, thinking about the human aspect, what it would have been like to experience the things that these people experienced, and in this particular case, Abraham. Let me just illustrate that with one small part of the account, just so you hear what I'm saying. Genesis 22, verse 2, the Lord says to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Verse 3 says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, he sat, saddled his donkey, and he split wood for the burnt offering. And it goes on from there. 
Now, most of us, when we read that, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've read that a number of times, we, we just walk right through it without giving it a second thought. But R.C. stops at that point and asks the questions, really ponders the questions, why did Abraham rise up early in the morning? Why did he saddle his donkey and chop wood for the fire when he had servants that would do those things normally? Well, the text doesn't answer those questions, but human experience does. I mean, just put yourself in Abraham's shoes if you can. Imagine the Lord came to you and asked you to sacrifice the child that you had been waiting 25 years to have. What emotions would you feel? What thoughts would run through your mind? Would you not toss and turn all night long trying and failing to come up with some other interpretation of what God could possibly have meant by His command. And then not being able to wait till your normal time in the morning to get up. As soon as the first hint of light shines through the, the tent, you get up and you're just full of that ener- stress energy, nervous energy, and you just, you just have to do something. And so you, you, you put yourself to work even though you could tell other people to do things for you, but you just have to do something to, to take the edge off that stress. Abraham was a normal man. Yes, he exemplified faith, but faith doesn't take away the, the depth and the complexities of emotion and experience. There are a lot of statements in Scripture, a lot of passages that if we just stopped to think about it, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the men and women of the text, we would find ourselves relating to them uh, much more powerfully as if they were in our living room telling us their story. This level of thinking about the text is not for the purpose of, of coming up with an interpretation. We interpret Scripture based on the text, but it does help us appreciate the challenges and difficulties people went through. Now, why do I say all that? Because we're here in Philippians chapter 2, and this is a passage that is very familiar to many of us. And it would be easy to to just run through this passage and think about the theology and what Paul is commanding these believers to do and and exhorting them and, and totally forget the human experience that Paul is speaking into. Again, the point is not to Think about human experience for the purpose of interpreting the passage, coming up with the meaning of the passage, but it does help us understand the impact the the passage should have on our lives. So I hope that we're able to do that to some degree today. If you're there in Philippians 2, follow along as I read verses 1 to 11, and then we'll dive into our study. Paul writes, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy by make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This text tells us how to live in the church as a Christian. Or more specifically, it tells us how to respond to conflict in the church as a Christian, as one who is a follower of Christ. In verses 1 to 11, we find the motivation, the mindset, the method, and the model of church unity and overcoming conflict. The motivation is in verse 1. The mindset is in verse 2. The method is in verses 3 and 4. And the model is in verses 5 to 11. Today, we'll look at the motivation of church unity and the the mindset of church unity. And Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of the passage three Sundays from now. Now, we don't know really much about the conflict that existed in Philippi. All we know is that Paul names, calls out two women in chapter 4 and urges them to live in a harmony. But we don't know the issue that was drawing them and the rest of the church into conflict. Perhaps that's for the best because it prevents us from limiting the instructions that he gives us here to only certain situations as sometimes we can do. But the emphasis on unity in this letter makes it clear that the conflict went beyond these two women in the church. It may be that the conflict centered around these two women, and then there, were, there was a, an impact on the broader church as family members and friends took sides, took positions, and then were in conflict with each other. Two factions in the church, if you will. Or it may be that there were multiple conflicts and multiple groups of people in conflict with each other over different things. Whatever the case, Paul doesn't limit his instructions to these two women. In fact, when he gets there in chapter 4, he really doesn't say anything other than live harmoniously together. He gave the instructions here to the whole church. And so, they are written here for us, for every one of us, for our benefit. You don't have to be part of the church very long, of any church, before you experience conflict. It may be as simple as someone bumping into you and not saying anything, and so you get offended. It could be a children's ministry worker who, when you go to pick up your kids, they tell you something about your child that you don't like. It could be a difference of opinion on the choice of songs or the style of music or the way other things are done in the church. The worst conflicts I think, are when you're in such a, a conflict with another person that you, you find yourself grating against them such that it becomes a hindrance to your ability uh, to worship the Lord joyfully and freely and receive the ministry of the Word. Just walking into the building can be a stressful experience because you know you're going to have to see that person at some point. We all know what conflict feels like feels unpleasant, bothersome, discouraging, demoralizing. 
It can cause varying degrees of anxiety. Your heart rate goes up. Your palms begin to sweat. They can rob us of joy and freedom in ministry. Where we're coming to church used to be a delight and a breath of fresh air after the week that you've had. Now it becomes stifling and a drudgery. We walk around looking for that one person to make sure we don't make eye contact. And then when we see them, we go the long way around so that we don't have to interact with them. Conflict in the church is awful. That's why many people choose to avoid conflict and just run and leave and go somewhere else at the first hint of conflict. At the church we attended 20 years ago or so, I remember there was a first-time visitor that came, and uh, she walked out during the music, didn't even make it through the whole service. And the pastor happened to be in the back of the church, which is how I found out about it later. And uh, she was offended because one of the women who was singing on the music team was particularly expressive, and she was. But this woman saw that, and it bothered her, and she says, "I I just can't be in here. And she actually told the pastor, I'm never coming back until that woman is not on the music team. There's a conflict in her mind. She's like, I don't even want to deal with that. Years ago, a friend of mine moved back into their hometown uh, and asked for church recommendations. And so I told him about a Baptist church that I knew was committed to expository preaching and biblical counseling. And the immediate response was, oh, I can't go there. My parents had a conflict there. And that's from someone who I otherwise thought was a mature believer. Why do these things happen? It's because the emotions that conflict produce are powerful. When you and I feel, or excuse me, what you and I feel when we have conflict is the same as what the believers in Philippi felt. Iodia and Syntyche, as they're named in chapter 4, and their families, they felt the very same things that you and I feel. You know what? They had nowhere else to go. There was no other gathering of believers in town that they could go to and find new friendships and new ministry and, and avoid all of the conflicts that they had in their previous church. They were stuck Sunday after Sunday, probably day after day, engaging with the believers of the one church in Philippi. So what is a believer to do when you're in a church that is anything but a joy to be in? How should Christians respond to conflicts they experience in the church? That's what the Apostle Paul is speaking into in this passage. Now, clearly, the answer is pursue unity. That's obvious. We, we know that from all over the place in Scripture. But we know that's not easy. Paul knows that's not easy. The Holy Spirit knows that's not easy. And so we are given here the motivation of church unity in verse 1 and the mindset of church unity in verse 2. So let's begin with the motivation of church unity. Look again at verse 1. Paul says there, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. There are four dimensions to what should motivate us to pursue church unity. And all of them are centered around God. These are like four gases that believers have to breathe in that help us live in a world poisoned by conflict. As you look at what Paul says there, uh, this is admittedly vague. You know, taking the words just by themselves without any further thinking, you could interpret this as though Paul is, is hopeful but uncertain about these things. And he's effectively saying something like, well, if you feel encouraged by Christ, uh, if you feel consoled by love, uh, if you have fellowship with each other in the Holy Spirit, and, and if you have compassion and affection for one another, then pursue unity. That interpretation makes the instructions that follow based on subjective experience and uncertain feelings. And so someone could say, well, I don't feel any encouragement in Christ, and I certainly don't have affection and compassion for the people I'm in conflict with, so this doesn't apply to me. No, the Holy Spirit never instructs us on the basis of our feelings. You won't find any command in Scripture, and this passage is no exception, where, where you read something like, well, if you feel like it, love one another. Uh, if you're having a great day, pray for your enemies. Or if you, if you feel comfortable, share Christ with other people. No, God never commands us in a way that we can slip out of them because of our feelings or, or our experiences. And so Paul certainly isn't doing that here. So what is he doing? What conditions is Paul placing around his instructions? Well, as Paul helps Christians who feel that angst and that turmoil of, of being in conflict with their brothers and sisters in Christ, he points them to God and the gospel. Objective truths that universally apply to all believers. And it's on that basis that he calls them to pursue unity. So let's look at these four statements one by one to see how they motivate church unity. He begins there by saying, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... The word if in each of these statements is used for rhetorical effect. Uh, last week in the sermon while I was preaching, I made the statement, if the scripture is true, and no one was doubting, man, is Pastor Gabe questioning the veracity of scripture? No, the, 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 the same is true here. What Paul means is, since there is encouragement in Christ, or because we have encouragement in Christ, that's the meaning. And so Paul is certain about each of these four statements. The word encouragement then overlaps with the ideas of, of comfort or consolation. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul uses this same word, the Greek word, five times in one sentence. And so see, as I read it, if you can pick out which word he uses. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we have been comforted by God. Did you, did you hear it in there somewhere? Clearly, in that passage, the verb and the noun form of comfort is the same word that's translated here as encouragement. 
Uh, to comfort or to encourage means to come alongside someone and to speak soothing and strengthening truth. When the Scripture uses this word in reference to God, it's, it's most of the time used or translated as comfort, our text being an exception. And when it's used in reference to others, it's often translated as encouragement. We worship a God who comforts his people. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul wrote, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us through the coming of Titus. Paul interpreted his circumstances, the coming of Titus, as God comforting him. He, uh, the Lord extended encouragement to Paul in his affliction by bringing to him a brother who could be a support for him. Listen carefully to the two ways Paul talks about this in the Thess- to the Thessalonians. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, may He comfort and strengthen your heart in every good work and word. Did you catch both ways? First, He says that the Father and the Son have given us, past tense, eternal comfort. And partly on the basis of that eternal comfort, he asks that they receive temporary or comfort in this life from God. Knowing that his people would experience troubles and difficulties of various kinds, Jesus often spoke strengthening and soothing words to his disciples, which apply to all of us who find ourselves in difficult situations. To those who are fearful and anxious, Jesus said in Matthew 6, kind of paraphrasing and summarizing, don't you know that your Father knows every need and He will provide for you? To those who are troubled, in John 14, Jesus says, peace I give to you. Excuse me, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. And then he said in in John chapter 16, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The thick air of conflict can be stifling. Sometimes we respond to conflict in a way that it becomes the only lens through which we look at all of life. And that amplifies our emotions about that situation. And so what we must do in such situations is breathe the air of the gospel and remember that Jesus has conquered sin and death. So are you discouraged? Because you know you sinned in a conflict and you just don't want to admit it. Well, be encouraged because you can be honest about your sin because Jesus has already conquered it. Or are you hurt because the other person has sinned against you? You can be comforted because Jesus has conquered their sin as well. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for for my sin and the other person's sin. Or are you down because 
you don't know how to move forward or you feel like you lack the strength to do what, what needs to be done. Be strengthened by remembering that by granting us peace with God in the gospel, Jesus made peace with others possible. By remembering these truths and the many other truths of the gospel, we are comforted in our angst and, dis- and our discouragement is turned to encouragement to pursue unity because of the comfort we have in Christ. Now, the second motivation there is this. If there is any consolation of love. This is the love of God. The phrase is sandwiched between the encouragement in Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so it's easy to draw the conclusion that this is the love of God. But we have further evidence in 1 Corinthians 13, 14, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, where Paul says almost the exact same things. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there the Trinity is explicitly stated. And so we can see him using that same thought here to refer to the love of God. Now, the word consolation there is a synonym to the word encouragement uh, in the previous phrase. And so it seems like Paul, like any good writer, is wanting to say basically the exact same thing, but he wants to use a, a similar word without a similar idea without repeating the identical word. And so consolation also involves the idea of comfort and encouragement. When we are in conflict, we need to be reminded of the love of God. In 1 John 4, John wrote this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And as you know, he goes on to talk about love uh, later on in that section, and then he ends that paragraph by saying this, We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. When we are at odds with a brother or sister in Christ and we're feeling anger toward them, we're not thinking about how to love them. In fact, in a raw moment of honesty, we might even say, I hate them. I hate how they've destroyed my joy, my ministry. But John here says, no, 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 no. Do you remember how you were loved? Remember how our brother, the Apostle Paul, said in his letter to the Romans that God loved us, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so John writes in his letter, if God so loved us, if he loved us in that way, we also ought to love one another. The consolation, the the comfort and encouragement of God's love is that his, his love toward us is not dependent on how good we are. God does not give his love when we're good, when we do right, and withhold his love when we're bad or we do wrong. That's what we do, but that's not what he does. His love is a unilateral commitment for our good, and that commitment holds true no matter how much we fail 
to live consistently with the gospel. And so if God loves us in that way, should we also not love one another? A third motivation then, there in verse 1, is if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship means to, to share in or participate. And so the fellowship of the Spirit is the participation we have with God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed as three persons in eternity uh, past as the Godhead in perfect love and unity and harmony. And when the Father planned redemption in eternity past, and the Son accomplished redemption 2,000 years ago, and the Spirit applies redemption to each one of us in our lives today, they do that. It's for the purpose of bringing those whom are saved into the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. Before salvation, we were enemies of God. We wanted nothing to do with God, but at salvation, we have access to Him. We have fellowship with Him by the Spirit. And not only do we have fellowship with Him, but He has fellowship with us. He is involved in our life. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the indwelling Spirit who adopted us into the family of God and who gives life to us and who leads us and conforms us to the image of Christ. And he confirms to us that, yes, in fact, you are a child of God. And that same Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. And so in the midst of conflict, when we can feel so uncertain about what, what to do or just powerless, uh, we may... F- uh, we may feel like there's no hope and we don't know specifically what to pray for in the situation, but Paul reminds us here that we are not left to ourselves, that the Holy Spirit is with us and He can help us overcome the tendencies of our flesh and guide us and intercede for us in the midst of conflict. In Galatians 5, Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then he goes on to define what are the kinds of things that the flesh does. And among other things, he cites idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. There's 15 total in the list, but those nine all have to do with conflict. And so whenever there is conflict in the church you will find the expression of the flesh somewhere at some level. Now, in contrast to that, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so if we're walking by the Spirit and the Spirit is at work in our life, we will respond to the difficulties in a way that promotes unity. We have fellowship with the Spirit, and He motivates us toward unity because we're united to God, we're secure in our salvation, and we're empowered by the Spirit. Now, the fourth motivation there at the end of verse 1 says this, if there is any affection and compassion. Affection and compassion. Though these terms stand alone with no reference to whose affection are they or to whom is the compassion being shown, Paul has been God-centered up to this point, and he hasn't given us any indication that he's changing his tune. So he's speaking of God's affection and God's compassion. 
Affection refers to the seat of our emotions. So it doesn't speak to the character of God as such, but to the response of God to the plight of sinners. When God, when John the Baptizer is born, his father Zacharias, uh, you know, he, his tongue is loosed and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. And in that prophecy, he says this about the life that John will lead. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Listen to this. Because of the tender mercy, that's the same word, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zacharias there identifies the affection or the tender mercies of God, which will be embodied by the Messiah, or, or as he calls him, the sunrise from on high. And so God's tender mercy, God's affection for sinners, is what moved him to action, sending his son to live and to die and to rise again, making peace with his enemies. This is the same word that is used in the account of the prodigal son of the father, that when the father's son saw the son from a long distance, that the father felt compassion and that moved him to run to his son and embrace him. It's also the same word in Matthew, used in Matthew 18 of the king uh, who had a slave who owed him 10,000 talents and unpayable debt and realizing the consequences of what that would mean for the slave, that that would mean a life sentence in debtor's prison for the slave, the slave's wife, and the slave's children, the king felt compassion. And that moved him to forgive his slave. Beloved, God has compassion for us, his people. He had compassion on us while we were sinners. He knew the eternal punishment that would come to us as the just penalty for our sin. And he was moved to action to rescue us from that eternal destruction. Now, the second term there in verse 1, translated compassion, is a near synonym. It's also translated mercy in 2 Corinthians 1.3, which I mentioned earlier, where it's, uh, God is called the Father of mercies. God is the Father of mercies. He's the Father of compassion. He looks at us as his children when we're in conflict and he is moved with compassion. He's not apathetic or unfeeling. He, he doesn't do the kinds of things that we often do as parents. Why are you guys fighting again? How many times do I have to tell you just be nice to your brother? No, he is compassionate and merciful toward us. And so Paul says in Colossians 3, so as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So his compassion toward us should motivate us and move us to show compassion toward those who are at odds with us. The encouragement or the comfort we have in Christ is also at work in those with whom we are in conflict. The consolation of love that, that we experience, our sister experiences as well. 
the fellowship with the Spirit that we enjoy, they enjoy too. And the affection and compassion that God has toward us, He has toward them. And so as fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the family of God, we should be motivated to pursue unity because God has comforted us and He has loved us. He's brought us into fellowship with Him and set His affection on us and all of that while we were His enemy. And so breathing in these these gospel truths, remembering what God has done for us, should propel us forward toward church unity. Now, having established those motivations, Paul turns to the mindset of church unity in verse 2. Look again at verse 2. He says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, Paul could command them directly to pursue unity, but he appeals to them indirectly. It's as though he he puts himself in the middle of those people who are in conflict and he appeals to the fact that everybody has compassion for him, Paul. It's like when he wrote to Philemon and he said, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what's right, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I'm such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Philemon was written during the same imprisonment as Philippians. And so Paul is there as an old man who has suffered greatly as we've seen. And he loves Philemon. He loves the church of Philippi. And so he appeals to them. He's already told them in chapter 1 verse 4, and he will tell them again in chapter 4 verse 1, that he has great joy over them. And so when he says, make my joy complete, he's effectively appealing to them to fill his joy to overflowing. So it's not as though he's unhappy with them, but the disunity among God's people is a deep concern for Paul. And so he desires that when he hears that they have become unified, it will become to it will cause him to rejoice more than he already does, and it will relieve the concern that he has for them. So how can they complete his joy? By having the mindset that they are to pursue and preserve unity of mind, Unity of love, unity of spirit, and unity of purpose. Let's walk through these. He says there, by being of the same mind. It literally means to to think the same. Now, it doesn't mean uniformity of thought as if, hey, everybody have the same opinion on every issue. (laughs) That's impossible. Rather, it means to think in the same kind of way. To have the same thought process. We see the application of it in verse 3 where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. So we're all to have the same kind of thinking. And in that case, we're we're all to think you're more important than I am. Now elsewhere, Paul says that the scripture provides for us the the mind of Christ. And so in the matters that God has revealed to us, we are to think the same way. In Isaiah 55, we are familiar with those words that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And while that's always going to be the case, we should aim to make the thoughts that God has revealed, that God has disclosed to us, our own. We're to embrace together God's view of reality. We're to embrace together His priorities and His values and His desires. We should all think the same in terms of 
thinking the things that God thinks to the degree that he has revealed them to us. So we should have the mindset that aiming to embrace the same kind of thinking is our goal. When, when we're in conflict, we should all be asking the questions, what does God say about this? What are God's priorities in this situation? What does God value here? That's how we have the same mindset. The second mindset we should have there is that we should maintain the same love. Maintain the same love. This means to have the same love for one another that God has for us. We saw that in 1 John 4 earlier. We, we don't just love others because, John, because God loved us, but we love others in the same way that God loved us. This love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It is a decision, a commitment of how we will relate with one another. If we are to love this way, that means that we can never withhold our love because someone isn't acting the way we think they should act. We can't say, well, they're not doing their part. They're not reciprocating my love, so I guess I'm going to withhold my own sacrificial love for them. No, that's not how God's love works. That's, it's man's love that stops when things get hard. That's what unbelievers do. But if we're going to live as Christians in the church, the fullest expression of true Christian love starts when we're at odds with one another. And so we need to embrace the mindset that when someone sins against me or I'm at odds with someone else, that's when I start to love them as God has loved me. The third mindset of church unity is that we should be united in spirit. This is one word in the Greek that literally means one souled, one souled. We should be united in heart. We're of one soul when our beliefs, our commitments, our values increasingly reflect the heart of Christ. And like sanctification, our unity will never be perfect in this life, but, but we, will, we must aim and work to be of one spirit or one soul or one heart together in Christ. That's why we gather together for corporate worship to not only worship God and sing our praises, but to hear from God so that we can embrace His mind. That's why we offer classes so that we can grow disciples of Christ, those who are following after Him. That's why we have small groups and men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. Uh, we're to be hearing the Word of God together, studying the mind of God together, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ together so that His heart becomes our heart. Unity, true unity, is based on truth. You know, many think that the, the way to have unity in the church is just don't talk about anything controversial. But the reality is that creates the most fragile kind of unity. And we saw that the last couple of years, where the social justice movement and responses to the pandemic and political differences shattered many churches. Why? Because people did not have common convictions and priorities and values based on unified convictions of God's word. And so we must aim to be of one heart with one another. Now, finally, our, our final mindset should be to have one purpose, to have one purpose. If you're looking at the ESV or the New King James, you can see that Paul effectively uses the same 
word as he did earlier in verse 2. And if I can be woodenly literal, earlier he said, think the same. And this word is the same word, just in a different form. And it means have one thought. The same word is used again in verse 5, if you look down there, where he says, have this attitude. Now, it's impossible to, hard, or to draw hard distinctions between these, these purposes because all of them are functions in the heart, but the NAS translators are justified, I think, in, in identifying a common purpose, one purpose that we should have, because what Paul is saying is not referring to the process of thinking, as we talked about earlier, but to the result of our thinking. And he says there should be one result as you think the same way. And if there's any universal mindset that that all believers should have in common, it is our purpose, namely to glorify God in all things. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So then whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And if you think about it, that passage is the summation of the instructions of what are you to do when we have differences in Christian living? Whatever we do, we're to, all to, have, we're, we're, we're to do all to the glory of God. In 1 Peter 4, Peter talks about how we are to love one another through the exercise of the gifts that God gives us by the Spirit. And he says this, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So our one purpose as Christians in the church is to glorify God and to ensure that He is, that in all things God is glorified. So in the midst of conflict where we have differences of opinions and perspectives and goals, we should be willing to, to let go of our own thoughts if it will lead to the glory of of God. Conflicts are opportunities. They are uh, the greatest opportunity is that conflict uh, provides for us a way to glorify God above myself. I mean, just imagine if we all had that mindset where we had no concern for my own thoughts, my own opinions, my own preferences. My desire is to glorify God and your desire is to glorify God. That would bring us together rather than drive us apart. And so that mindset should be the driving force in our actions and our words. Well, I once met a man, met with a man who was abrasive in how he talked to and about people in the church. And he always managed to, to stir up conflict with others. And when I appealed to him about the way that he spoke, his response was essentially this. Well, this is the way we talk at work. Why do people in the church have to be so sensitive? What he missed was that we are not to take the ways of the world and bring them into the church in how we deal with conflict and disagreement. We are Christians not by our own doing, not by our own self-determination, but by the work of Christ on our behalf. And as Christians, we are called to live in, a church, in, in the church radically different than the world acts. But too often, we, 
we imbibe the, the ways of thinking and the tactics and the methods of pol political critics and media personalities and how they speak about their opponents. We imitate the world in either attacking or ghosting people. We harbor bitterness and anger in our hearts and we let the turmoil of conflict drive a wedge between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we should be motivated by how God has comforted us and loved us and united us to himself and poured out his mercy on us all while we were his enemies. And as a result of what he's done, he's made us his friends, his children, and even the bride of Christ. And so the more that we reflect on the work of God in our lives, it will motivate us to move toward those with whom we are cross-purposes. We will be motivated to have hard conversations, to hear difficult things, and to speak the truth in love. Our hearts will be drawn toward others as God's heart has drawn us toward Him. His love toward us will overflow in our love toward others. And with those motivations, we'll have the right mindset of what it is we're actually trying to accomplish. That we're not to aim at peace at all costs, at the expense of what's right, or at the expense of the truth. Rather, our goal is unity around God's priorities of cultivating the mind of Christ and, and exhibiting love and being conformed to the heart of God and aiming at one purpose, which is the glory of God. Now, these things we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray and ask for his help. Our God, as we meditate on these truths, as we think about the situations in our life that cause such heartache for us, it may be that there are some here who are not in a conflict of any kind with anyone at the moment. But many of us probably are. And so it's helpful to us to meditate on how you have loved us, how you have drawn us to yourself. That though we don't deserve it, you have given us your son who died and rose again on our behalf. You've indwelled us by your spirit. You've poured out your affection and compassion on us. Lord, may those realities loom large in our mind. May they be the, the air that we breathe day in and day out. And may that cause us to move forward with the right mindset of pursuing one another. Not for our own sake, not to get what we want, not to feel better about ourselves or about our circumstances, but to bring you glory. So that the church, Hope Bible Church even, would be unified in a way that the world would stand in awe of the transforming power of God. For your glory's sake, we pray these things. Amen.